cover stories with Chess Life, the U.S. Chess Federation's podcast that goes behind the scenes and more in-depth about each month's Chess Life magazine cover story. Make sure to listen to our family of U.S. Chess podcasts, which include One Move at a Time on the second Tuesday of each month, in which I talk to people who are advancing our mission statement, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month, and that is hosted by our Women's Program Director, Jennifer Shahadi, and on the fourth Tuesday of each month, Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant Director of National Events, Pete Karianis, in which he examines the game's eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. All can be found at the podcast link on Chess Life Online at uschess.org or subscribe via iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Our guest today is the 2018 U.S. champion, Grandmaster Sam Shankland. That same year of 2018, he broke the 2700 ratings barrier for the first time. In 2010, Shanklin won the U.S. Junior Championship, which qualified him for the U.S. Championship the following year, where he went on to take third place. Two years later, Shanklin was part of the U.S. national team that won the Pan American Championship, where he had a performance rating of over 2,800. He then received the prestigious Samford Chess Fellowship later that year. In 2014, Shanklin became one of the top 100 players in the world. He also won a gold medal at the 41st Olympiad for the best reserve board player after scoring an undefeated 9 out of 10. He's now an answer to a trivia question after defeating Grandmaster Judith Polgar in her last ever rated game during that tournament. Shanklin ended the recent 2019 U.S. Championship in 6th place. He's also the author of the critically acclaimed 2018 book, Small Steps to Giant Improvement, Master Pawn Play in Chess. Welcome to Cover Stories, Grandmaster Sam Sh- Sam Shankland. Oh, thanks. Glad to be here. Talk a little bit about your now completed year as the 2018 U.S. champion. Did you find yourself treated differently? Did you feel differently about yourself? Yeah, it was obviously a huge confidence boost, and it was a dream come true for me. I mean, I I've, I dreamt of that moment for as, really as long as I can remember. Uh, yeah, and. Uh, I definitely, the U.S. Championship was not my only good results of the year. I had a real breakthrough after being stuck in the mid to high 2600s for like three years. Uh, it, it let me, it was the catalyst that sent me through to the next level and I started getting more and better invites. And uh, obviously now I'm not U.S. champion anymore, which to some extent breaks my heart, but uh, I hope I can get it back someday. But what I hope I've done in in the year that I had was do everything I can to inspire our young homegrown American players to show them that, uh, you know, people like them can make it to the top, even if it takes longer than you might like, or, uh, they're not as common as you might like that they can make it. And that I'm hopeful that I was able to inspire them. So one of the things that you just said about the heartbreak, uh, you're quoted in the CLO article about the end of the U.S. championship is saying that the 2019 event was far from my worst event, but definitely my most painful one. Uh, you know, why don't you expand on that a bit? Well, it's the championship of my country. Uh, you, know, I've, you know, I've lived in the United States my whole life. I grew up saying the Pledge of Allegiance like any other kid in school, and I've always dreamed of playing for my country and being the champion of my country. And it's, it was the most visible failure I've certainly had, and it was uh, and just the most painful because I was the previous champion. I had I'd had good U.S. championships before and bad U.S. championships before, but I never came in as the defending champion. And then when the first time I did, I, I really underperformed uh, because basically nothing went right. That obviously 
caused a huge amount of pain. It's not like I, you know, crashed and burned and lost 30 points and finished in last place or anything, but, uh, cause you know, that, I don't know if I've heard anything that horrible, but I've had much worse tournaments. It's just, they haven't come in such important moments and not in events that have meant so much to me personally. And you're right in this, uh, July cover story, uh, a, a bit about how, uh, some of the reasons why this might've happened. Uh, the 2018 event, you had almost perfect preparation, um, uh, and, and with your, your second being available and such. And then they were just almost a vic- you were almost a victim of circumstances with the 2019 event with scheduling problems, your second not being available. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I came in largely unprepared and exhausted because it was my fourth tournament in a row. The U.S. championship got moved three weeks forward, so my whole planning got screwed up. It was the tournament I cared the most about, so I made sure I had like three weeks to four weeks off to, uh, to rest up so that I was not rusty, but I also was well-rested and fresh, and that obviously when the tournament was moved, that kind of ruined these plans, and I'd already signed my contracts and everything. And I certainly don't berate the St. Louis Chess Club or anything. They did what they had to do when the Grand Chess Store announced their dates. It's not like this was hostile, and I think they made the right call. It's just it's sort of that made it tough for me. And then my second being unavailable, that was just sort of random. I mean, he's an active player himself, so it's uh, it's you can't just expect him to be available all the time. Uh, but ultimately, you can complain about circumstances all you want, but there's nothing you can do about that. All you can do is control the quality of the moves you played, and to that extent, I failed. And I never would go so far as to suggest a failure or a bad result. Uh, lies The blame lies with anybody other than myself. How much time does a top player like yourself, when you're a professional chess player, how much time do you spend prepping for an event like the U.S. Championship? Is it weeks? Is it months? How many hours in a day? Well, uh, you spend time prepping all the time, but the, how much you spend prepping specifically for one kind of tournament or one event, it's, it's hard to say because you can be doing general work on chess overall, which can be opening work or not, but that you're happy to use anywhere. But the U.S. Championship, I had to prepare a little bit more specifically because... Um, Unlike my other events, it was sort of a bimodal tournament in that there were four other 2,700 guys and then a bunch of guys that were quite a bit lower. While most of the events that I'd been playing recently, I wasn't really playing guys that I thought I should be trying to beat with black, for example. So I tried to tailor my strategies in some of these ways, but then it also with the pairings, and I got black against the big guys, basically. So the, the stuff I had prepared to play for wins with black wasn't really going to become relevant. Uh, it... It sort of was, um, it was a little strange in that regard, I guess. But uh, I, I spent a f- as much time as I could preparing for the U.S. Championship. But I mean, I had three days between the Prague Masters concluding and the opening ceremony starting. So it, it's not like I really had that much time. Um, what do you mean when you call it a bimodal event? I mean, there's uh, there's basically two categories of players. Those who are 2,700 and beyond who... Uh, are super elite, and then those who are not there yet, but I mean, certainly, oh, at least most of the U.S. Championship who who are not 2700s are young kids that I think could certainly get there, but they're not there yet. And these are the guys that you have to beat. If you look at how the U.S. Championship was won in the last few years, Hikari won this year, like, and I won last year. Both years, all the games between the 2700s were drawn, every single one, including me last year, even though I wasn't technically 2700 yet. Uh, and it really just came down to who beat down the somewhat weaker guys that are still very difficult, uh, most effectively. And this year was Hikaru. He made plus five against the lower guys. Last year I made plus six. And it largely this tournament is about who can, 
who can take care of business against these guys that are really, really strong, but you, you're going to need to beat to win the U.S. championship. Of these uh, up-and-coming players, who, who do you think have the best chance of becoming our future top players? Um, it's hard for me to say. Uh, I think that if you look at guys like Jeffrey or Ray or Wander or Sam Sevian, the odds of any one of them becoming a top player is pretty low just because the odds of any one person at all becoming a top player is pretty low. But I think that they're as likely as anybody else on earth, if that makes sense. Uh, you know, someone has to make it there. So they should be thinking to themselves, why not me? And I know the three, I know the three, the four of them, they're, they're hardworking guys. And, uh, I certainly hope that they make it. Uh, I think their chances are as good as anyone else's, but it, it just has to be said that most, uh, most 2,500s don't make 2,550. Most 2,550s don't make 2,600. This holds true all the way up to 2,800, 2,850 and beyond. I mean, when you say um, zero guys who have made 2,850 have made it to 2,900. There's been, what, 12 guys make it to 2,800, and I think like two of them made it to 2,850. So it's, uh, you see, like it, it just gets harder and harder as you get farther and farther up. But, uh, you know, I, I really am looking forward to seeing what Jeffrey and Sam Sevian and Ray Robson can bring. Uh, and then a wonder is a bit younger, of course. And then there's also other guys that, I mean, keep in mind, the U.S. Championship is only 12 players and there's not so many spots available. So there's also, I'm sure, tons of other promising young stars in America that didn't even get to play. The cover story on the U.S. Championship also covers the the Women's Championship, and Tatev Abrahamian covered their journalist duties for us on, on that event. Did do the U.S. Championship participants uh, spend any time looking at the games and the results of the women's championship as well, or are you all do you just have enough on your own plate with the U.S. Championship? Well, I certainly can't speak for how the other players in the championship behave. Or, uh, you'd have to ask them. But for me, this year I certainly didn't, just because I was having like a really bad tournament, and it's the last thing you want to do when you're having a bad tournament is go check standings and social media and see what's going on. You just want to sort of try to get your head out of the game for a little while to try to recover and play the next one well. So actually, when Maurice asked me what I thought about Jennifer Yu's scintillating performance, I actually had no idea she had won the tournament. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I, he, I guess he got my pure, uncensored uh, initial impressions because I hadn't had any chance to think about that. But um, yeah, I... I don't really pay attention to their event during the tournaments. Of course, I, you know, like last year, of course, I had to take a picture with the winner. So it's, it's not like I didn't know what happened eventually, but it's, it's not something I try to follow. I don't really follow other events at the same time either. When I'm playing, I, I just try to focus on my own tournament. One of the games you annotate in this uh, this article is Robson Nakamura from Round Nine, and you call it one for the ages. Uh, talk a bit about the game and what the readers can or listeners can expect when they uh, look up that game and your annotations. Well, I mean, Hikaru is a hero to me, and he's a hero to all of us. I think that are, let's say, maybe a little bit younger than him, uh, and just saw like this one American, you know, make it to the top in an era where. You know, no American had won a major tournament ever until Hikaru won Tata Steel. And uh, and where, you know, homegrown players were were almost unheard of, uh, even in like events like U.S. Championship and stuff. Uh, but um, so he was obviously a hero to us. And I can tell you that uh, what I had seen from him when he was younger and when, he, in my opinion, he was at a t- playing at a higher level than he is now. And I think the rating would, would agree was that he was really mixing things up and fighting with both colors. And I mean, he's a stronger player than I am. And I don't want to, 
you know, give my diagnostic as to why he's been struggling. But I don't really think that this play the Berlin Queen's Gambit declined every game that seems to be what you have to do in these elite tournaments. I don't really think that suits him that well. And it was just really great for me to see him go back to his roots, you know, fight, take risks with black, play the dragon and win the U S championship by playing like that, as opposed to being extremely solid, like you tend to see in super tournaments. Was it at all surprising that, uh, you know, with, with, with Dominguez in the, in the mix now, um, Caruana just coming off of his world championship, um, contention, uh, that, that Nakamura chose this year as his comeback of sorts? Uh, not in the slightest. I've always thought Hikaru was a fantastic player, and uh, I never really understood why he was struggling so much. But uh, you know, when I mean, when Caruana and So switched, uh, you got to realize that for like three or four years before Caruana, like really ended up being number two in the world. Like So and Nakamura were also cycling through number two in the world, and so Hikaru was just not like any worse than them or anything, and. It's. I never really thought that they were better players than him, and uh, but I, I mean, I guess now Carwana's high enough rated. You have to say he definitely is, but it just it didn't really occur to me that I've always thought form is temporary, classes forever, and I was for me it was sort of a one will Hikaru be back rather than an if, and I don't really think it's too surprising that it would be now as opposed to any other time. So um, this, this year's U.S. Championship also uh, determined qualification into the World Cup, which is going to be held in uh, Russia from September 9th to October 2nd of this year. And now Nakamura, Dominguez, Caruana, Sevian, and Zhang all qualified from this event. And so and yourself had already qualified. Um, let, me, let me correct you and point out that Zhang did not actually qualify. Oh, okay. Well... Thank you for that. I've got incorrect information here. Um, yeah, you, you need to make 50% and he didn't. It's it's getting tough because the U.S. Championship has five spots that qualify for the World Cup. And granted that now we have four and perhaps even five with me, guys that are just take, will just get rating spots anyway. Uh, we basically qualified one person to the World Cup from this U.S. Championship, and that was Sam Sevian. Oh, okay. Um, so tell, tell the listeners what the World Cup is and your experience playing in it. Well, the World Cup is a 128-player knockout. The top two players get to play in the candidates. I've always been a big fan of knockout tournaments, and I was rather heartbroken that I couldn't get to play the Grand Prix this year for largely political reasons. But uh, it was. Um, uh, but the the knockout at the World Cup is fantastic. It's by far my favorite event. Uh, I've played it twice, and I didn't qualify in 2017, which is really a shame, and I'm just so glad that I'm back now. But even as a 2700 player, I was playing in the American Continental last year because I wanted to qualify, and I'm, I'm glad that I got through that Open without too much disaster. But uh, but it's, it's a real opportunity to be qualifying for the World Cup. It's a fantastic chance to get, and... Uh, I'm just glad that uh, Sevian got in. It's got to be a real balancing act in your head to, to think about going uh, halfway around the world to, to play a knockout event. No, it's sort of, I, I wouldn't think so. I mean, I, I'm a professional chess player. I travel around the world to play tournaments all the time. That's what I do. I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm used to it by now. And it being a knockout event doesn't really change the way the pieces move. But uh I mean, obviously, I'm very excited to be back. I mean, that's that's the the tournament I'm looking forward to most in the rest of 2019. Maybe that's the difference between champions like yourself and also rands like us. We we tend to think, oh, uh, I, I'm going to put more pressure on myself in round one because it would be really bad for me to have spent this much money to come here and and. 
be out of the tournament so quickly. Well, rest assured, I'm not going to be spending money to get there because, like, the first round losers get 6000 bucks, and I should be a pretty serious favorite in the first round anyway. I've, both times I played the World Cup, I went through. The first time, actually, was against Peter Lecco way back when. But, uh, um, yeah, I, I'm not going to pretend that I don't get tired or that I don't feel pressure because, obviously, I do. We all do. But, uh you know, I'm an I'm an adult. I'm a professional. I've been doing this for a long time, and and I'm more capable of handling it now than I was before. And what is what qual- uh, constitutes a round in the World Cup? Is it one game with white and black, and then a uh, uh, an Armageddon if necessary? Yeah, it's one one game, one classical game with white, one classical game with black, and then rapid tie breaks, then faster rapid tie breaks, then blitz tie breaks, then Armageddon if absolutely necessary. But uh, in the four World Cup matches I've played, only one went to tie break and. Well, Hikaru is very good at rapid, and I didn't have much chance in that one. But uh, mm-hmm. that was also back when he was like twenty eight fifteen. I was playing on board two of the World Cup. But uh, yeah, it's uh, th- that's roughly what it looks like. Uh, I like that. Um, I've always liked this concept of knockouts, where because people are talking about classical chess and rapid chess, I've, I've never understood why people hate rapid tie breaks so much it's any other sport if it's tied at the end of regulation you just play the same game but faster it's the same with baseball basketball soccer you name it like literally everyone i've never understood why people complain about rapid playoffs and uh but i like that classical is what matters most and if you win classical there just isn't a rapid it doesn't matter and uh and rapid only comes in as a tie break uh I really like the format. I've always loved knockout style tournaments, and uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Does that feeling about rapids extend to the World Championship itself? Oh yes, of course. I mean, I think I mean that's uh, certainly the most prestigious and elite tournaments in the world. But I, I don't see it as any different than any other. I don't think that. I mean, if you look at any old random NBA game during the season that is not consequential to the playoffs. If it's tied, it goes into playoffs. And what, because we're in the finals when it's tied a hundred to a hundred at the end of the game, we're suddenly going to change the rules. No, I, I think it's totally fine to have a faster version of the same game being your playoff. If the, normal version is unable to produce a winner. One of the things you said right after the uh, this year's U.S. championship was that you were going to be taking a little bit of a break from competition. Uh, I, I know you're about to play in the St. Louis Summer Classic, yeah. and and of course, we got the World Cup in the fall. Is is, is is this a light schedule for you, or did you walk, work or walk back from that statement a bit? Well, I certainly haven't played since then, and uh, I will play the St. Louis event, which is, uh, I guess that's going to be like two months later so i've had a little bit of time off but then in addition to the world cup and the st louis event i also have Beal. so it's basically as i said i took a little bit of time off from playing uh i mean i i, I knew even before i that the u.s championship went so badly i knew i needed that just because i was so tired from you know the four events in a row but uh i um yeah i took the uh i'll be playing Beal as well so the schedule will pick up like normal soon but i've had a little bit of time off so let's talk a little bit about chess journalism because you're you're slowly but surely building up a, a lot of credentials as a chess journalist. You've written a number of articles at this point for Chess Life magazine, and you, of course, we mentioned your book "Small Steps to Giant Improvement." Uh, you, you said at the championship you'd be writing a sequel to that book, which Chess Life book reviewer John Hartman wrote about it. It's an intimate, unvarnished interrogation of a strong grandmaster's mind at work and a clear articulation of the pragmatism at the heart of contemporary chess praxis. It is a fascinating first effort from the new U.S. champion, and I sincerely hope that the promised second volume soon sees the light of day. So 
what are you planning for a sequel to this book? Well, I've finished my first draft. Um, it's which I submitted a few days ago, and I'm working on the edits now. It probably will be out sometime in September or October. Uh, it's all about past bonds, uh, which is sort of the polar opposite of what I'd written about previously, the concept that pawns don't move backwards. Now we're talking about shoving pawns all the way down to the edge of the board. But uh, basically any game that is not decided by a direct attack or a tactical oversight or something like this is going to feature past pawns of some kind. Almost any endgame will have them. Uh, it's, and I think past pawns are a very important topic. I broke down the different kinds of past pawns, which I would say are connected past pawns, lone past pawns, protected past pawns i did uh two chapters on all of these in the middle game playing with them playing against them but another two chapters on all of these in the end game playing with them playing against them as well as uh end game chapters on concept of the outside pass pawn versus the inside pass pawn as well as um split pass pawns and those topics i think are particularly unique to the end game i don't really think you ever see split pass pawns in the middle game or at least it's extremely rare that there's something important going on with that but uh just like my first book, I wrote it for entirely selfish reasons. I wrote it because I wanted a chance to investigate a topic that I felt I needed to understand better than I did. And, uh, I mean, it's I did it for my own improvements. I mean, not because I want to write a good book, but I am hopeful, just like I was last time, that uh, the fruits of my analysis not only help me, but also have the side effect of helping anyone who... Uh, has enough faith in me that they choose to read what I have to say. Do you have other other books on uh, on the horizon? Do you, you do you see yourself as a regular chess author from this point on? Well, we'll have to see how this next book goes. I mean, the first book I wrote in the introduction. If the book turns out to be a success, I'm going to write a second volume covering some of the other pawn related topics that I haven't yet done. And uh, as I wrote in the introduction for this one, my word is my bond. Uh, that's how, but I never gave a timeline in which this had to happen. I could have chosen to write this book many years in the future when my playing days are over. I mean, I never said I'm going to write it tomorrow, but I chose to do it anyway because I thought it was a valuable experience for me in, uh, in, in learning myself. And uh, I, as long as I feel that way, I will continue to write books. But I mean, ultimately, I mean, books, they're great, but they don't pay that well. It's not like that's how I'm trying to support myself or anything. I will continue to write as long as I feel like it is a valuable learning experience for me. And when I no longer feel that way, that's when I'm going to stop writing. And then maybe I'll pick it up again when my playing days are over. But uh, I was just amazed looking over at my games from this last year where I had such this meteoric rise at just how many would have fit perfectly into my first book and how the guidelines that I had written about applied very well to my own games. And uh, I, I think that's really why I wrote the book and that's why I wrote the second one as well. So we're going to take a break here and uh, we're going to go to our uh, best question contest, which is sponsored by U.S. Chess Sales. And by the way, listeners, Sam's book can be purchased from U.S. Chess Sales. Uh, U.S. Chess Sales is the official chess shop of the U.S. Chess Federation. U.S. Chess Sales is the largest chess retailer in the United States. From chess books, software to DVDs, from chess pieces to clocks to computers, U.S. Chess Sales is your complete one-stop chess shop. With over 5,000 items in stock, it offers same-day shipping at a low-price guarantee. Find it cheaper at any specialty chess retailer, and we'll gladly match them. Shop today at www.uscfsales.com. So, Sam, our first question comes from Andy Tishner, and he asks, 
Do you think that there's a chance that U.S. chess will host formal Fisher Random events in the future? And what are your general thoughts on Fisher Random or Chess 960? I think Chess 960 is fantastic, and I think we will definitely have Fisher Random events. So we've already had the Champions Showdown, uh, which was Fisher Random, that I thought was a lot of fun, um, despite getting clobbered. But it was, uh, I, I certainly think this is more on the horizon. I, I mean, I hope so, but ultimately, I, I'm not an organizer myself. I'm not organizing these events. It's just I have faith that the powers that be are interested enough in it that it will continue to happen. And the question that I've selected as our best question uh, comes from Akshay Ramanathan, or Ramanathan. I'm apologizing if I'm messing up your name, and your $50 gift certificate is waiting for you in your email inbox. Sam, what are your thoughts about the future of engines in chess, and do you think that they will finally solve our beloved game? Uh, I think at some point engines will have solved the starting position of chess to the point that a computer will figure out what ideal play is from that. But I don't think we'll ever reach a point where there's a 32-piece table base where you can just throw a bunch of pieces on the board and the computer will immediately know what the evaluation is. Uh, But I also think the moment when they solve the opening position and like find maybe not like completely solve it, but solve it to the point that a computer, for example, playing black will never lose ever. Because uh, even in like the Alpha Zero Stockfish matches, like Stockfish was still losing some games. But like, if they get to a point where every single computer game is drawn from the starting position, I wouldn't be that surprised. I still think that's sometime in the future, but uh, I don't think they will ever reach the point where they can just look at a, a random position that could come up and just know that um, and know the evaluation immediately. I don't think thirty-two piece table bases will ever happen. So uh, another thing I. I find interesting uh, from your past is some of your non-chess activities. And I I hope what we're about to talk about is a fun memory for you. Uh, In in 2016, you competed on the first season of Fox reality game show, Kicking and Screaming, where you finished in eighth place. And this is a show that teamed 10 expert survivalists with what Fox called pampered partners to face the um, the toughest challenge of their lives. And uh, if there was anything unfortunate about this, they, I think they really played up the chess geek stereotype. Uh, but, you know, that that's something we, we always are dealing with. What was your takeaway from your experience on this show? Well, it made me appreciate chess a lot more. It was an eye-opening experience into a really different world. And I met some people that I've, uh, I've really stayed in touch with for years afterwards as well. I mean, I saw a bunch of those guys in... Um, just in February, but, uh, it was for those who didn't watch it, it was very far from an objective competition. And that is something that you can easily forget about in chess. You can, like I talked about in my article, the reason, some of the reasons the U S championship went badly and why some outside factors that made it harder for me to compete. Well, when it comes down to it, chess is an objective game. When you play better than your opponent, you win. And when you don't, you lose. And you have no one to look at but in the mirror. And in these sort of popularity contest style TV games where you can do everything right and then just sort of be voted off, it wasn't quite like that on mine. But you could sort of tell that I was sent into the elimination challenge before I really deserved to be there, largely because of perception or popularity. Uh, it definitely made me appreciate chess a lot more. And it was, and I really. But I really enjoyed uh, meeting these new people from new walks of life and facing new challenges and just understanding what humans have had to go through because, you know, I starved for eight days before I was sent home. 
and there was it was rough and there was a time in human history where people were starving for seasons and uh and i guess i just appreciated how much we have now in uh in the 21st century how did you come to the attention of the producers and come to be selected well, I got recruited for the show. I think the whole cast was actually recruited because since it was the first season, there were no open casting calls or anything. And so I got this email from a casting director saying, yeah, we're looking for a chess player to like go on the show. At first, I thought it was my friends playing a prank on me, but uh, it turned out to be real. And so I called them and they seemed very enthusiastic about me. They flew me out to Los Angeles and... Uh, I, um, that was actually right before 2016 U S championship. They flew me out there and interviewed me and I didn't hear from them or anyone for like a couple weeks. And I knew that it was starting filming just a few days after U S championship ended. So I thought, okay, they didn't choose me. It's fine. And then, um, and then, but it was interesting. And then, uh, I think like just before the start of like round 10, which was like less than a week before the show was supposed to start filming, I got a text message from a phone number that I didn't have in my contacts list saying, yeah, we need your, your head circumference and your chest circumference for your helmet and your life vest. And so I was like, okay then. But uh, it, was, uh, it was definitely interesting. And uh, while that one happened not to be a prank at uh, training camp with Magnus in 2016, uh, we definitely did prank you and Ludwig Hammer. We took the original email I got from the casting company, and this was in the interim period between the show being filmed and it going on TV. And we just, we, we convinced him that uh, we were looking to put a chess player on a show with like geeky men and beautiful women's like, challenges and we wanted to interview him. And he was pretty disappointed when we were the ones who answered the phone. But uh, this was funny. So he fell for it, hook, line, and sinker? Oh, fell, hook, line, and sinker. He, he called the Norwegian newspaper. He had to get him to cancel the article. <laughs> um, and did you prepare for this show like a uh, professional chess player? Or did you learn as much about uh, survivalist skills as you could, or did the producer specifically ask you not to do that? Well, for all oh, I couldn't because I was playing in the U.S. Championship. I I took some swim lessons because I wasn't always a great swimmer, and as you saw in the first swimming challenge, I was I, I was actually not so bad. I I was pretty fast, and uh, and I made sure I was in good shape. But also keep in mind, I, I had almost no idea what the show was was actually going to involve i didn't even know the rules of the show which actually changed in the middle uh, i didn't know the rules of the show until the day before we were thrown into the jungle we were i mean we were sitting we we're in the hotel in fiji going over with the producers what the rules were going to be then i mean i really had no idea what i was getting into so there was not much preparation to be done and listeners you can find episodes of this available on youtube so uh, go 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 check it out if you missed it on this first run and as far as i can tell it was only a one season show. It doesn't look like there was a season two. Yeah, it it it, it got it got canceled. Its ratings were not very high. So, Sam, this is our 80th anniversary year at US Chess, and I'm I've been asking all of our podcast guests this same question, and so I'd like to close the show by asking it of you: What has US Chess meant to you? The organization, you mean? Yes. Well, I mean, it's the organization that has given me the opportunity to play for the country that I've loved so dearly for as long as I can remember. Um, you know, they've sent me to the, they had enough faith in me to send me to the World Youth when uh, there was some dispute over um, which rating list was used and whether I'd qualify or not. And ultimately, U.S. Chess decided to send me and I tied for first. And uh, if they hadn't given me that vote of confidence, my life might be very different right now. Um, you know, chess in America has to grow, and I think U.S. chess has been 
doing their best to make that happen. Well, Sam, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. We certainly wish you good luck in the upcoming Summer Classic and this fall at the World Cup. Thank you so much for being on our show. Yeah, thanks so much. Bye-bye. Now it's time for this Skittles Room on our Cover Stories podcast where we talk to people that are doing something of note or of interest within U.S. chess. And I'm welcoming to the show our Assistant Director of Events, Pete Kurianis. Pete, welcome to Cover Stories. Thanks, Sam. I'm really happy to be here. So Pete is our Assistant Director of Events working for Boyd Reed in our events department. And he also does uh, a podcast himself. Uh, I believe we have two episodes available now. It's called Chess Underground. Pete, tell, tell our listeners a bit about that podcast, although I, I want to uh, get a promise from our listeners that they won't go listen to yours until they finish listening to this episode of Cover Stories. <laughs> that seems like a very reasonable ask. Um, yeah, it, it, <clears throat> it's very exciting. Um, I, I named it after actually an old website I used to run where... I invited a lot of people from the chess community to contribute. And the idea was, um, you know, just tell stories, tell chess stories. There's a lot of fascinating uh, chess stories out there and a lot of fascinating chess personalities um, who have something to share and have a voice to be heard. And um, so that was sort of my approach with, uh, with starting the podcast was um, I want to tell the chess stories of, of all players, you know, um, the average Joe, titled players, players from other countries who've emigrated here and who play. Um, I'm really interested in these, you know, eccentric personalities with unique stories. Um, you know, in the very first episode, um, Eric V. Hill, president of the Iowa Chess Association, um, talked to me about everything from uh, in <laughs> secret, secretly invading the University of Iowa library to have a surprise flash mob tournament. Um, to uh, how to properly brew a beer, uh, so it was a, it was a, a really fun conversation I had with him, um, and and I find you know in my in my travels and in my play, I've I've been playing tournament chess since I was five years old, so over thirty years now. Um, I turned thirty six yesterday, um, and in that time, I've met so many people who uh, just have so many interesting things to tell me. <laughs> And so I'm inviting some of them, you know, one one at a time, slowly inviting them onto the podcast to uh, get some of those stories on record, if you will, uh, and and to um, get it out there into the world. Uh, and, I, and and so far, it's been a blast. Uh, you know, my second guest was Micah Tui, who nonstop talked for, for pretty much an hour straight. And, and it was just like this stream of consciousness, amazing interview where I didn't even have to ask any of that many that many questions. Um and uh, and my third guest, who who hasn't dropped yet, but who I just spoke with last week, um, is another really fascinating individual, Ron Suarez, from actually from my hometown here in Peoria, Illinois. Uh, and he has probably more knowledge about chess sets and chess collecting um, than anyone I've met. <laughs> and I've seen his chess collection, and it is massive. Um, he has he has a, an extreme amount of chess equipment, and it's fun just to browse through and look at all the different chess sets he has and, and hear the story behind him. And listeners, just like our entire family of podcasts, you can subscribe to Chess Underground at iTunes, at Google Podcasts, and Spotify, as well as finding it on the CLO section of uschess.org. Um, so Pete, as Assistant Director of Events, what do, what do your job duties entail? Um, quite a bit. You know, I, I was sort of, um, I, I shouldn't say I was surprised. I expected that, you know, running an event 
of the magnitude that our national events are would would entail quite a bit. You know, there would be a lot uh, going on. Um, there would be a lot uh, of action. Um, but but pretty much it's uh, it's uh, head to toe. Um, everything that you might imagine to to run an event. That's what we work on. Um, that's site preparation, site selection, contract review. Um, uh, you know, sort of the behind the scenes stuff, hiring the staff, um, all the way down to, you know, some of the particular details, like making sure, um, there's a, a proper amount of water in the playing hall for the players. You know, uh, it's a very detail oriented position. Um, no detail is too small to be overlooked. Uh, we try to have as professional and high quality, um, chess tournaments as we possibly can. Um, so that's a big part of it. Um, I also handle, um, some of our international teams that we send to international events right now. In fact, right before um, you and I uh, hopped on the call and started speaking, um, I was preparing a, an invitational letter for one of our official representatives to the World Cadet Championship, which is coming up in Weifang, China, um, August 20th, I believe it starts. Um, so we send, uh, you know, the, the U.S. Chess office sends teams to three events. Uh, we handle registrations for three main events every year, which are the Pan American Youth uh, Championship this year. That's in Ecuador. I'll be attending that one. Um, and the World Cadet, which is in uh, China, as I mentioned. And then the World Youth, which is in, um, I think it's in Mumbai, India, uh, this, this fall. Uh, and actually, we do we do send a fourth team out as well. We send out a team to the U16 Olympiad. Um, so, so my role in those events is I, I uh, help the players who are who are participating get registered. Um, we work with the other international federations to uh, make sure they have the proper travel documents, visas, um, invitation letters, that sort of thing. Um, and it's a it's a pretty uh, it's a pretty interesting process, you know. Uh, you're, you're working with. Um, you know, for example, this year we'll be working with the Ecuador Federation, the Chinese Federation, the Indian Federation um, to send our teams over there and hopefully be successful in international competitions. Um, so, it, you know, it, it, it's a variety of things. Um, my role uh, primarily is focused on our domestic events, though, um, and, and how can we enhance those? You know, as I'm sure you know, Dan, one of the things we did this past year, uh, which I'm very, very hyped and excited about, probably overly so, is we put in a live stream um, at all of our national events uh, where we have um, video commentary uh, from a live relay of the games on site with um, <clears throat> special guest grandmasters and titled players. It's been really exciting. The viewership numbers have been great, and I think the, uh, the participants of the tournaments have, have really enjoyed stopping by and uh, checking out the live stream, interacting with the host, interacting with the commentator. Um, you know, that's one of the, the things that we've, we really like about our events is the ability to to interact and really engage um, with our membership and with uh, the players and with the, the families. And I think the live stream is just another outlet for that sort of um, you know natural interaction, natural engagement at the at the events. Yeah, and, and I think your excitement is certainly justifiable because it's been an unqualified success. I've only heard good things uh, about the Twitch stream, and as this show drops. We are almost exactly one month away from one of the granddaddy of our national events, the, the U.S. Open. Yeah. Why don't you give the listeners the, the basics about what, what to expect, where to register, uh, hotel information, all that good stuff. Yeah, so the U.S. Open, um, <clears throat> I'm really excited for it this year. It's in Orlando. I love Orlando. Um, 
you know, there's the theme parks, uh, there's nice weather. Uh, it's just, a, it's just a great city. So I'm really excited about this year's U.S. Open. Um, it's August 3rd to 11th. Uh, you can play the nine day traditional schedule, which is one round per day. Um, and, uh, apart from the, the actual open itself, there's a ton of side events that you can participate in, which honestly are, are my favorite. I, last year, I don't know if you know, Dan, but I actually was able to play in the bug house. Uh, <laughs> US no, I did not <laughs> last year. Um, and that was a lot of fun for me. Uh, but, but apart from the bug house, you know, we have, uh, daily quads, game 30 quads. You can get a lot of rated games in. If you want to just go and play a whole bunch, you can do that. Um, we also have a blitz tournament. I think, I think we still have a game 15 this year. Um, and on top of that, you know, there's also for those, for those people who are more interested in, in us chess and getting involved with us chess, there's a lot of governance functions. There's lectures, there's committee meetings, and many of those are open. Um, Dan, as, as you're aware, there's also an, an ask the staff session where, um, you know, us chess, uh, staff members like myself and yourself, will be available and you can ask us pretty much anything, um, any kind of questions you have about the organization. Um, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of things going on. It's, it's more of a, the U S open to me is more of a festival atmosphere, um, than it is a, than it is strictly a tournament. Um, apart from the open itself, we also have the Denker, uh, which is the high tournament of high school champions. We have the barber, which is the tournament of junior high, um, middle school champions. We have the National Girls Tournament of Champions, and last year, I believe, was the first installment of the National Senior Tournament of Champions, which will be going on again this year. Um, and Dan, am I right? Are we doing tennis again this year? So I am almost ready to announce the details. In fact, okay. by the time this podcast drops, we, we may have the details available on the website. Awesome. I've, I've circled that. That's one that I'm looking forward to. So I, I don't know if I can get away for it because, you know, at an event this large, as I'm, as I'm sure you're aware, my duties are pretty significant. Um, but if I can, I would love to play some tennis at this year's U.S. Open. I think that sounds like a ton of fun. Um, and there's usually a golf tournament as well. Do you know if that's happening this year? You know, I'm not sure. Um, you're right. There usually is. Let me just look real quick. I don't see it yet, but it may just, the information similar to the tennis might not be out. I would imagine in Orlando, there's plenty of options for golfing. So keep an eye out for that. Um, if we get it up there, um, yeah, I see the tennis actually, but I don't see the golf yet. Um, and, and the tennis information is, is just a placeholder for right now. And let me correct you on one item. You, you said the national girls tournament of champions that has just been renamed oh. the Ruth Herring national girls tournament of champions. Oh, good. Wonderful. Okay. So, um, that's, that's nice. You know, we have, we have, uh, a name for the Denker and the Barber, so I'm really happy to hear that. Um, yes, and of course, those three scholastic events that you mentioned and the senior event are all closed, invitational-only events, but the U.S. Open and all the other associated side events are free for all. Uh, well, not free, are, I, I mean free for all to enter. <laughs> right, yeah, correct. Um, entry you can still do online. Um, I believe we are still in advance of the pre-entry deadline. Um, the hotel is a very lovely property. It's the Rosen Center Hotel um, in Orlando. Uh, we held um, last year's K-12 at another Rosen property. I believe it was at the Rosen Shingle Creek. Um, so they're all uh, lovely hotels in Orlando. Um, and I'm sure if, if you go, you'll, you'll enjoy your stay there. Uh, it's, it's actually a nice place to experience Orlando. You're a little bit away from all the madness, but you're also close enough if you do want to visit the theme parks that you can get there very easily. 
Right. There's an awful lot happening on International Drive where uh, that's within with walking distance of the Rosen Center Hotel. And SeaWorld is also very close uh, to uh, the Rosen Center Hotel. That's right. Actually, I think you can even see it from a window in the hotel room, but no guarantees. Well, Pete, it all sounds great. Thank you for joining us. And I look forward to seeing you on the tennis courts and the chessboard over the chessboards in Orlando. <laughs> sounds good, Dan. Thank you very much for having me. And I'll catch you there. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the July edition of Cover Stories with Chess Life. Our podcast will return next month when we will be talking to Bruce Pandolfini about the 2019 Spring National Scholastic Championship season. U.S. Chess is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose educational mission is to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. To become a member, go to uschess.org and click on the Join button where you can find a membership option that is right for you. As a member, you enjoy rated play, print and digital copies of Chess Life or Chess Life Kids, and you help U.S. Chess grow the game. If you are already a member, consider clicking on the Donate button at uschess.org. Thank you and good chess.